may be seated. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation, if you're visiting with us, maybe aren't new to the Bible, is the last book of the Bible, and we are finishing um, a series. It is our regular practice to preach through books of the Bible or large sections of Scripture. And so today we're going to finish our study on the book of Revelation, if I can get my Bible open. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, starting with verse 6. This is God's Word. And he... John here is referencing the vision, the angel that's been giving him this vision. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down in worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Would you join with me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. From your throne, where you reign with all power and authority, we would pray this, Lord Jesus. Come and open our eyes to see beautiful things from your 
word. May we delight in it. May we be equipped for every good work. May some who have never tasted your goodness or seen your beauty come to faith today. Work in all of us, we pray. In your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, as we finish up our study of the book of Revelation, I've, I said from the beginning that hopefully by the end that we would leave here with a, a sense that this book really was easier and clearer than we once thought it was. And in order to get there, I think one of the things that we have to remember as we're closing up is that Revelation is a letter. It's written to a people to help them navigate life in a real world. Right? And like the letter of the day, John's book, his letter, begins with a greeting, a prologue. I, John, he introduces himself, greets his audience, but also like the letters of the day, it ends with an epilogue, a closing. And that's where we find ourselves today in verse 6. So as much as we would like to end our study with the book of Revelation, with the grand vision that we saw last week of the new heavens and new earth, John brings us back down to life in the real world, back down to life that is now. He's given us a vision throughout his book of what God is up to, ordering world events. He's pulled back the curtain of space and time so that we might see with eyes that are new and fresh what is going on in the world around us. And you see, that's one of the things that makes them think the Bible believable. It looks at life not through rose-colored glasses, overlooking the evil in this present age, but looks at it, doesn't look away and sugarcoat it. It presents evil, and so we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, but throughout the whole Bible, it, it presents evil that is gross and dark, much like most of us face day in and day out. Evil that is so gross and dark, whether it's in the world or in our own hearts, it presents it in such a way that it has to be dealt with. It can't just be dismissed or coated over. And so we saw this week as the Taliban retook Afghanistan, it began to target Christians. Just a few months ago, pastors took great risk and registered themselves with the government, knowing that this would eventually come. And they did so because they wanted to set an example for the coming generations that faith in Jesus Christ is a public faith, is to be announced one that is known because Christ is to be made known. He is the great light of the world and should not be hid under a basket, but made known to the world. And so they publicly made their faith in Christ known. And the result of that commitment is that they were immediately targeted. And not just them. There are reports coming out of Afghanistan that the Taliban have taken the teenage daughters of these pastors, kidnapped them. And turn them into their own sexual slaves. There's no cheap and trite bumper sticker that will sugarcoat that to make it go down a little easier. It is evil that must be dealt with. That's who John is writing to just after, just before, slightly before John's writing this book, Nero had taken Christians and dipped them in wax and put them on stakes so that he could see a little bit better 
in his garden at night, lighting them on fire. That is evil that must be dealt with. That can't be sugar-coated or turned aside. Well, in China, years ago, with some of my college students, we would regularly have to sneak into homes for worship. The gatherings would often be limited to 10 or 15 people because more would start to draw attention from neighbors and would likely report them to authorities. These are real threats. Goes on across the world, but generally creates in our age the kind of pressure that most Christians face. This isn't typically what we face, the pressure that pastors in Afghanistan or Christians in China are facing. Most of what we face has been what Christians from age to age have faced, and it is this, the pressure to compromise, to make just a few adjustments here and there, to live a little more comfortably in the world. I don't want to upset my coworkers, so I'll just keep quiet about my relationship to Jesus. I'll be labeled as a bigot and an oppressor because I believe that when Jesus created humanity, he created them male and female, and that was a beautiful thing. That gender is fixed, and that's his glorious design. We have the pressure to treat the waves and the teachings of Jesus. I often say this. We, the pressure on us is to treat the ways and the teaching of Jesus like, like he's the weird uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. Right? That you're like, well, I'm going to take my girlfriend over to introduce them to my family for the first time, but I probably need to warn them about the weird uncle just so that they might be willing to take it down a little bit more easily. He's eccentric and, quite honestly, a little embarrassing. That's the kind of pressure that we face, to treat Jesus that way. And Revelation's goal is to look at the sum of that experience and give us a grit to live life here and now by that we might remain faithful to the end. Blessed are those that overcome. That has been repeated over and over and over again. And so while we would love to look away with last week's sermon of the glorious new heavens and new earth where God dwells and his people see him face to face and there's no more pain and suffering, John is writing to real people in a real world with real problems and so he has one more thing to say in his epilogue, his closing statements. And I want you to hear the urgency in John's closing words. Verse 6. John says that he was given the book of Revelation by God through an angel to show his servants. And here the Greek is really slave. Those who are slaves who belong to Jesus. What must soon take place? And then in verse 7, Jesus announces, behold, I am coming soon. Then again in verse 12, behold, I am coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then again at the close in verse 12, surely I am coming soon. There's an urgency that John is calling us to. But those words, these words were written over 2,000 years ago. And so you've got to wonder at this point, what does John and Jesus mean by soon? And I think to understand what soon means, we have to pull back a little bit and See how the Bible sees the progress of God's redemptive work in the world. See, since 
Genesis 3.15, from back at the very beginning, God has been marching his plan forward, his plan of redemption to put the world right again. This is the storyline of the Bible. Adam sinned and put all of creation under the curse of God. Creation is groaning, waiting for its liberation. It's cursed, and so are we, cursed by the power of sin and under the guilt of sin. But God, the great words at the heart of the gospel. There's the bad news. Here's the good news. But God promised that he, wouldn't put th- that he would put things right again. He wouldn't leave this things this way. Sin, Satan are not going to win. He's going to move his kingdom forward. The kingdom of God progressively advances through the pages of Scripture. And so the story of the Bible is the story of God's redeeming work in the world. And it is told through historic events. God the Creator acting throughout history to move His plan of redemption forward through actual events. And the grandest of these events was the coming of His Son into the world who died the death we should have died, lived the life that we could not live so that his record becomes our record. That happened, an actual event. He actually died for our sins. He actually obeyed all of God's commands in time, in history, so that he could earn a record of righteousness for us, so that we who were once dead in sin could be made alive united to him, and God would say, regardless of what you've done, you stand righteous before me because my son in space and time accomplished that for you. His worth becomes our worth. His status becomes our status. That's the heart of the gospel. And as a result of his faithfulness, even to death, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him on his throne and his kingdom has been established Forever and ever, he's currently reigning and currently going to bring soon, very soon, will bring a new heavens and new earth. That has happened in space and time in historical events. And so the story is in its last pages. Or to use the language of story, we are in the last days because Jesus has finished God's redemptive work. There is nothing more for him to do. Consider what Hebrews says in Hebrews 1-2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's using the language of last days because the great event of redemption, God's saving work has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The rest is just cleanup effort. Or as Peter writes in in his letter to a suffering people, again, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has made manifest in the last days, in the last times, for the sake of you who are through him believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in what God has done. And this is why John can say, or Jesus will say, I'm coming soon. Everything that's necessary for you to enjoy freedom from the curse of sin has already been done. 
And the story of God's word has recorded that. Jesus has one. As we've said, this is the message of the book of Revelation. Jesus has one in his death and resurrection. He will win. And he'll take his church with him into the home that he's gone to prepare for us. Everything has been accomplished. And so he can say, I'm coming soon. There's nothing else left to do except for me to return. This is most likely why John isn't supposed to seal up the book. Verse 10. And the angel said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And we'd seen in chapters 4 and 5 that Jesus unseals the scroll of God's plan so that what is written down in his plan can be accomplished in the world. The time is near. Don't seal this up. God has done in the first coming of Jesus all that is necessary. Now there's just one more thing, and that is for him to return. And that time is near. Or in other words, we're not waiting for another savior. God has sent his son, and he is enough. His work finished is enough. And therefore, it's just, it's just, I think about this as like extra time in a soccer game. You know, the game's ended. You've, just, this is the thing that blows me away about soccer. Don't get me started on soccer. Well, this is one of the things that baffles me about soccer. The time's run out, but we're still playing the game. How much time is left? We don't know. We're not really sure. We know at some point the referee is going to blow the whistle. The game will be over. The clock has run out. This is just extra time. That's where we're at. Jesus has finished his work. And he will blow the whistle and return. In the meantime, we're just living in extra time. And so, be ready. Because he is coming. And his coming will be like a thief in the night. He will just be going around doing our everyday activity. You're going to go planning your grocery store visit, driving to the soccer game, on vacation, and a trumpet will blow, and the Lord will descend. And as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians 5, while people are saying there's peace and security, everything's going well in my life, there will then sudden destruction will come. Upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so be ready now. Because when Jesus comes, he is bringing his recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I began this work of redemption. I will finish it. I am the beginning, the one who made all things, and I'll bring them to their final conclusion. And it will come quickly like a thief in the night. And so now, now is the time for preparation. Then will be the time of judgment. The only way to prepare for the return of Jesus is to be washed in his blood, the blood that can make the foulest clean, the blood that will avail for you, because his work is enough to prepare you and secure you for when he comes again. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city gates. And then 
he invites you today. This is his invitation. It's so beautiful, verse 10. He is reigning. He's been he's died. He's now alive forevermore. He's the lamb slain, seated on his throne, coming again to bring his recompense. Today, he says to you, the spirit, his spirit, the bride, his church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What an upside down economy this is. The kingdoms of this world say, give me everything and I'll make you a ruler. Jesus says, give me nothing but your sin. I'll wash you and give you a right to my tree of life. And now I'm inviting you, come today, come. For he will come like a thief in the night and bring all of your deeds to judgment unless you hand all of those deeds over to him and say, die for my sin. And then he says to you today, if you're thirsty, if your soul is dried up and shriveled and you are without hope or strength, come, just come and have water of life without price. But you better do this now, right now because he's coming soon and a part of John's urgency is not just to call us again to Jesus but to give us this new reality the urgency is we've got to live this out now today that Jesus is coming soon and he will bring a new heavens and new earth and see the tendency over church history the over the ages is spent for Christians to hear that promise and just quit living in the world. Just quit. Just pull back, stop working. It's been a critique of Christians that we can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good and it's in some ways it's been a fair critique. There's a real temptation to live that way because life is difficult and we can just escape in our own imagination to the world that's to come and just quit living life. And see, John is saying there's two ditches that we can fall into as he's bringing us back down to earth. There's two ditches. You can become too pessimistic and withdraw from normal life, or you can become too optimistic and think the kingdom of God can come by our own ingenuity and efforts. That we can hasten that, build the kingdom ourselves, or just give up because the evil of this world is too difficult and life's just too hard, so we just give up and become too pessimistic. And John's going to say, don't fall into any one of those ditches. And he's giving us these two things, work and wait. At the same time, verse 10, and he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. And then he goes on, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. You see what he's saying? He's like, just keep going on living as you are. According to the kingdom that you are part of, if you belong to the kingdom of the dragon, let, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. Keep living life according to your kingdom. 
But if you belong to the kingdom of the Lamb, and this is what is true about you, verse 14, blessed are those who've washed the robes so that they may have a right to the tree of life. They can enter the city by the gates. And as a result, now let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Live according in this world to the kingdom that you belong to. And you see what he's doing is he's saying, look, the Christian doesn't work to become someone or gain someone or build something. The Christian works because they are in Christ. And this is the way the Christian life works. The gospel says to us, just become who you are in Christ. Live in light of you who you will be one day in Christ. You belong to him. You belong to his kingdom. One day you will live fully and free from sin and corruption in this world. Now, this is who you are. Live in light of the reality that is to be yours. See, it's the intention of Jesus, the bridegroom, to present his bride adorned with good works. Thus she is clothed with the righteous deeds of the saints. And Jesus doesn't look at the outward appearance, but looks at the heart. So the bridegroom really doesn't care what you post on Instagram. Or what cause you might be signaling to the world today. But he does care about righteousness done by his people who he has already made righteous with his righteous record. Working that out in the normal, hidden, small moments of our days. And so he tells tells us, take up your cross daily and follow me. The husband who takes up some of the work of his wife, that his wife normally does so that she can have just a moment to herself. You don't have time in that moment to grab your phone, take a picture and post it on social media because you are dying to yourself. You, the, your bride is what's in front of you. No one's going to see that but the Lord Jesus. Let the righteous still do righteous still. Live this out. Take up your cross daily and follow me. The manager who gives up a raise so that his poorer employees can make a little bit more. The mom who puts off her own needs to tend to the needs of her children. Normal, everyday life is where this kingdom gets worked out. You see, in Thessalonica, the Christians had quit working. They had literally stopped working. And their, their reasoning was, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, what's the point? So Paul urges them, that's not the way this works out in the kingdom that you belong to. And so he says, we urge you, brothers, make this your ambition or aspiration. All right, now we're buckled in, we're ready. Can tell me, what's my ambition in life? To live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you to, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders. Just normal, everyday life. Bring this reality that we've been envisioning back down to ordinary life and let it transform the small things that you do. And then we wait. So if one ditch is to just fall into cynicism and not work, work, but wait, we don't want to get an over-realized eschatology or an over-realized over view of what the world would be. We don't want to get too optimistic about progress in this world. It's one of the things that Revelation has been very clear on. Things will get worse. There is real evil. It's present. The dragon is trying and marching his kingdom forward, but he won't win. And so we can't, in light of that, get too optimistic. The world is still falling. Bad things are going to happen. Evil will, at times, look like it's prevailing. There will be, as Jesus says, wars and rumors of war. 
As Jesus says, the poor is always going to be with you. People will fall away from the faith. And Jesus must return. We cannot build the kingdom of God, new heavens and new earth, by our own efforts, by our own ingenuity. Jesus must return. And as we wait, we wait for him. And we wait for him. We wait in this present evil age. One author compares the situation of believers waiting for the return of of Jesus with that of the French resistance fighters during World War II. Often these stories aren't known. Some of them are starting to come up, but during the four years of Nazi occupation, many of the people had started cooperating with the enemy. Many of the French had started cooperating. They just quit. They're just like, we're just resigned to this is what the new reality is going to be like. But there were a small brand of brave fighters who continued to fight against Nazi Germany. They sabotaged rail lines, raided military bases, gave information to the Allied forces. While... They eagerly awaited their freedom. And they didn't know when that would come. They did not know when the British or American troops would finally land on their shores or parachute into their fields or bring their gliders into their farmland. But they had been given information and code along the way as fed to them. We are coming soon. Stand by. Well, they knew they couldn't defeat Nazi Germany on their own, but they did know they could resist while they waited for the liberator to come. And that's where we're at. We work, we wait. We bring beauty, God's people who belong to the Lamb, do things the Lamb's way towards the Lamb's end for the glory of the Lamb, bringing beauty into this world, small bands of resistance here and there, pushing back evil wherever we can, but not with an over-realized hope, knowing that it's going to take Jesus to come back to put everything right. And finally, during these last days, while we work and wait, God's word is enough. It's sufficient for us. And quite honestly, it will be the only thing that gets us through while we are working and waiting. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. They are trustworthy in that you can bank your whole life on what God has said in his word. You can trust them. You may not be able to trust what you read on social media or what you see on the news, but you can trust what the lamb who was slain for the sins of this world says He's used his power to liberate those oppressed by sin. He has no other agenda but goodness in this world. You trust what he says. You can bank your life on what he says in his word. There's no hiddenness to him. He has openly stated who he is and what he's doing. And they are true. You can trust what God says in his word. Because he cannot lie. There's no shadow in him. But man, I'm afraid that we don't have the kind of patience for God's word to set and create that kind of firm foundation that we need for these days. We don't have the patience for trustworthy and true in the way that Jesus delivers it to us because trustworthy and true doesn't mean simple and easy. But this is what I want. I know this is what I want. I suspect it's what you want. We want simple answers and simple solutions. 
And I think part of this in my own heart is that complex and difficult is unsettling. And so I want to return to rest. And so if I can come up with a solution that checks these three boxes, then I can return to rest and not have to trust Jesus. And those three boxes are it's easy, it's simple, and it's somebody else's fault. And when I can check those three boxes, then I can return to rest. But there's a complexity to God's word because there is depth to it. It's not easy and simplistic. It's been said of God's word that it's like a river that a baby can swim in and an elephant can drown in at the same time. It's clear, but it's not simple. It's going to take some work. It's not simplistic because it's written for real people with real problems in a real world where real evil exists outside and inside of us. And so, John brings us back again to a person, to Jesus. He is a real person who really accomplished all that he said he would accomplish, really sits on his throne, really is coming again. And that is the one who is saying these words are trustworthy and true. He will do all that he has accomplished. Look, God is batting a thousand on keeping his word. One of the things that we've said throughout our study of Revelation is that the key to understanding Revelation is not by looking for its meaning in current events or future events, but looking backwards over the history of redemption that is recorded in God's word and seeing God fulfill all of those promises made over thousands of years by a variety of men in different historical and cultural settings all coming to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. is trustworthy. And what God says in his word is true. But we've got to spend the time and do the diligence to sink the roots of our hearts and the anchor of our soul so deep into God's word that when the waves come crashing on us, we won't be washed away like a poorly built house on the sea, but on one that is firmly fixed on solid ground. And so this warning in verse 18 comes to us. Not only is it trustworthy and true, but it is sufficient as well. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his chair in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And it seems as if this is double meaning. It's referring to Revelation, but the double meaning is this is the last book of the Bible. And it seems as if John's looking back all throughout the pages of scripture and saying, this is enough. What God says is enough. Nothing needs to be added to it because Jesus has finished his work and he is enough. And the Bible is sufficient because Jesus is enough. Within a hundred years of John receiving this unveiling in the book of Revelation, the African pastor Tertullian wrote this. Remember, John's writing from Patmos where he's in exile for being, and he's seen every other apostle killed at this point. 
And within his lifetime, just one gen- within a hundred years, the evil in the world had ramped up. And they were coming against the Christians. And Tertullian is looking at the world and he says to them, we're not a new philosophy. In other words, we didn't come up with this on our own. We are divine revelation. God has given this to us. And that's, that's why you can't just exterminate us, he says. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But only if that church is grounded in the true and trustworthy word of God and sees it as sufficient. And it is only true because the lamb that has been slain now reigns and is coming again. And so we end our journey through Revelation with the last word from the one who is the word of God. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, 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 I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to your table, we are reminded again that we are pilgrims on a journey to the new heavens and new earth, in aliens, for this present evil age is not our home. And in our journey, we need the sustenance of your gospel. And so this is our prayer. Take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and nourish us so that we might work and wait for you to come. We long to see you by faith. We long to see you by sight and no longer experience you by faith. But until then, because you are present with us, these are sufficient for our strength and nourishment. And so we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.